millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's a very special podcast. Uh, This is our second podcast featuring our good friend Nikolai uh, dealing with the Austro-Hungary and the Eastern Front, this time 1915, because we did 1914 and uh, it took us a whole year. And so now we're going to do 1915. Yes. What's his surname, Gary? Eberhost. Oh, bugger. I thought you'd forgotten. (laughs) Our good friend, Nikolai Eberhost, which I wrote down last night. Welcome, Nikolai. I'm (laughs) Peter Hart, and that's Gary Bain, the idiot. And uh, together we are beating Gary's military history, I suppose, are we? Uh, Right, let's get started. We've got no time. So tell us, what was the situation on the Eastern Front at the beginning of 1915? Lovely, Nikolai. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we left off last time, I think, with um, with, with basically a a point of of complete stalemate. Nothing has happened for, for either side. Um, the Austro-Hungarians have have failed to to make a, a, a an attack in, in Galicia, been beaten back, tried again, uh, and are left in in the Carpathians at this point with about a hundred thousand men still trapped inside the fortress of of Shemish, which is uh, besieged for the se- second time at this point. Um, the Russians have lost incredible amount of of men trying to to force a decision uh germany is the only one who really comes out somewhat on top uh with the stunning victory at sannenberg but then after that a, a bunch of of offensives that don't really lead to to a lot so since we're we're trying to focus a little bit on the austro-hungarian army just to limit it a little bit and also because that's what what I tend to to be more interested in uh, the uh, the casualties for the Austro-Hungarian army uh, for 1914. I mean, and this remember this is just five months of actual fighting. It's it's uh, more than a million casualties, including 15,000 officers, and wow. about 80 percent of these are on the Russian fronts. So so it, it is swallowing up an enormous amount of men. And and what what you have by this point is you have. Uh, what, what is sometimes been described as like an army of civilians um, because you don't have any more trained men. They're all new on the line. Would it be correct to say that the Russians could afford the losses 
uh, a little more than the Austrians in that uh, they had a, a sort of never-ending supply of manpower almost. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's definitely a, a thing for the Russians that they have a lot of of, of men. Uh, what they don't have is a lot of material. Uh, that that is going to be an issue throughout the 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 war, and especially in 1915, is going to be a really big problem for them. But it's also a, a huge problem for for the Russians because they really need to have something. They they need men. They have no reserves. We talked about this last time, that Austria-Hungary doesn't really have a trained reserve because they don't re- um, recruit that many men, uh, meaning that all the people coming in are, are, are new, newly conscripts who haven't had any prior training at all. They have high losses in material, and be- Austria-Hungary is not a big industrial power. They only have two rifle factories and one artillery factory, uh, this means that, for example, rifles, they've only been able to produce 140,000 rifles. It sounds like a lot, but it isn't a lot when you consider that they've lost more than a million at this point uh, of rifles alone. Machine guns, they only have one factory that can actually produce machine guns, and it's about 300 a month, uh, which means you have to pull in all the types of, of weapons and, and uh, machine guns, rifles, all black powder rifles, uh, that sort of thing. And, and then you... Um, uh, you also they also want to use captured rifles, so they they issue rewards for any captured enemy rifle. So it's it's a big problem. I mean, you have um, uniforms alone is is swallowing up enormous amount of 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 money just to 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 fill up uh, the stocks because they're empty almost immediately. Uh, Peter yeah. wanted to uh, just pass this over, but I really want to talk about the uh, German Eastern versus Western Front debate uh, because. The triumphs of Hindenburg and Ludendorff put them in the ascendancy. But Falkenheim was very much against sending reserves to the Eastern Front, wasn't he? Definitely. I mean, the, 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 the thing here is the, the whole Eastern and Western de- debate that, that goes on. Now, you would think that Falkenheim, as a, the, the, uh, the guy on top in Germany at this point, <laughs> Chief uh, staff. would be... Sorry? Chief of staff, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. That he would have the final say, but uh, but of course, Hindenburg and Ludendorff have become like national heroes in Germany and have a lot to say at this point. They're the only ones who have actually real, really had a, a proper victory um, at, at Tannenberg, as we said earlier. But but there is a, a big debate about where to go next. There is. Uh, for for Falkenhayn, he wants to to concentrate on on the West, but at the same time, there there are, there are pressures uh, from Hindenburg Lundorf to do something in the East. So what what they basically end up for, for Germany for for 1915 is that German focus will largely shift to the Eastern Front in an attempt to to end the war there, switch to uh, from a two front to a single front war, uh, and um, and see if you can you can like knock out Russia completely uh, and then the German army can be turned to the Western Front as will also happen later on in the war. But that is also the point uh, that that they want to try out uh, at this point. At the same time, you have the Austrian close to complete collapse after these enormous casualties that we just talked about. Uh, and and Germany also sees a need to 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 help at the, uh, their their allies on on the, on the Eastern Front. Now, they come up with a plan with Conrad, don't they, the, the Austro-Hungarian general uh, commander, for, for simultaneous offensives, which we're going to deal with separately. And we're going to really focus on the Austro-Hungarians. But the Germans are going to attack in East Prussia, aren't they, with a new 10th Army. And uh, Austro-Hungary is going to attack in Galicia. Now, this is... Di- oh, God. 
That's that place there. Uh, shimmies. <laughs> I'm going for. We used to pronounce it. Didn't we, Gary? But we've been told that's wrong. Um, but so tell me, why why is it so important to take the the, the besieged city? I mean, one of the the issues is that, of course, there's about a hundred thousand soldiers trapped inside it. That's that's uh, would would be a significant loss if if they were were, were taken. But of course, the main the main problem is that it would be a massive blow to Habsburg prestige uh, and to morale and to to to. Um, uh, to to Conrad's personal honor because he's really looking for some victories as well, and taking it would also be a massive victory for for him. At the same time, you also have the fear that that uh, the loss of Shemish would be such a blow that it would could bring undecided nations like Italy and Romania into the war on the side of the enemy. So, so a lot of, is riding on, on on this, at least in in the mind of Conrad, who who really wants to get this done. So it's the main objective uh, for uh, at least the early phase of 1915, uh, and and is it? A, it's a prior. It's a. It, they have to move quickly, I presume. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we remember last uh, time, with the uh, Austrian guns managed to 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 uh, lift the siege briefly in in October 1914, but then they are pushed back, and the city is again under siege. Now all this did was was just empty the stores even further because a huge army marched into the city, needed supplies, and then were kicked back out again. Uh, so they are in in a, a need to to be relieved fast. And there, there's a talk that they might not actually make it to February at this point. Um, like there's a lot about this uh, this um, the conditions inside uh, the, the fortress and and the life inside inside there. It, it, it isn't really a, a siege with a lot of fighting going on. Uh, because the Russians basically, after failed attempts in in the, during the first siege, just sit back and just wait because they they are pretty confident that the the Austro-Hungarians won't reach them and that they will run out of food eventually. Plus, they don't have the heavy siege artillery to actually take the 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 fortress. Um, so, so Conrad's going to attack through the Carpathian Mountains, yeah, uh, in the in, middle of yeah. winter, the, which seems like a great idea. Yes. What could go I mean, wrong? Time it, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, because time is of the essence, Conrad decides to 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 attack uh, at the point of his front that is closest to the, the fortress. That means launching this full-scale offensive across the Carpathian Mountains, which is just some of the most inhospitable and inaccessible parts of Europe and in the middle of winter, as we said. And this is just this will result in some of the most horrendous battles in history, fought in these horrible conditions for the control of a few mountain passes and nameless valleys and wooded heights that have just been lost uh, to our time. And he will do that three times, and it will be all failures and all with incredible casualties as a so result. The, so the first starts on twenty third of January, fifteen. Yeah, the first one is uh, Austro-Hungarian Third Army, supported by the German Sud Army, which is this um, German-Austrian combined army with with German leadership. Uh, they have 175,000 soldiers, uh, supported by about 1,000 guns. And they have initial success uh, at places where the Russians are, are weaker, but soon after the weather really begins to take a toll and already three days later they are completely exhausted and then the russians managed to counterattack uh, brusilov who we'll hear even more about in the future his eighth army managed to push the austro-hungarians back and they even lose control of their most uh, vital railhead and supply center it's a place called Monsieur la bosch 
which I won't claim to be able to pronounce perfectly, but <laughs> but that's a good try, I think. Uh, but yeah, the third army loses about 70% of their strengths in just 14 days of fighting. Uh, you have, for example, the fifth corps, for instance, entered the fight with uh, 18,000 men, and by 5 February, they're down to just 1,340. So it's enormous casualties. And that That's was not- followed almost immediately in February by a second offensive, wasn't it? Yeah, lost by the second army and then again supported by the third army, which has already been beaten badly. And they are fighting again in just horrific weather conditions with absolutely no nothing going for it. Uh, there's a, uh, a short uh, quote from uh, a German officer who's there, uh, and he, he, he writes in his, in his diary, he writes, Infantry attacks are hardly possible since the men sunk up to their, their chests in snow move forward so slowly that they're shot down like rabbits by Russians with their secure cover. So it's, it's just not going anywhere from them, and it just falls apart almost immediately. I do a very good German impression. I could have done that one. Now, if at first I do it, you... I'll do it Danish. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, what's the motto? Try, try, and do they try a third time? Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, even before fighting really stops for the second offensive, the the uh, general staff or just Conrad basically orders a third offensive which you see again, second army forming the main attack, now supported by the fourth army. But the problem is the fourth army uh, is um, on, the, on the flank and they can't, uh, they can't commit fully uh, from fear of being, being surrounded on their, their flanks. So they only se- send a small force. Uh, this is a hope that maybe the men inside the, the besieged fortress can make a breakout attempt, but this really never materializes. Snowstorms are already a fact when the offensive begins, and requests to postpone is replied by Connor with the words, poor weather shouldn't be an obstacle. That's that easy to say, uh, but as a result, yeah, Fourth Army just marches directly into a blizzard, and the whole thing is, is buried in snow. Now, throughout now, these, these attacks, they, they, let's talk about the conditions for a moment. He refers to it as poor weather. It wasn't just the weather, which was atrocious, but... There was a lack of proper roads. There was a lack of railheads, lack of artillery, lack of winter clothing. And frankly, they had poor luck with the weather. I mean, it was atrocious. So to, to describe that in that manner uh, shows a complete lack of understanding of the conditions, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it is a horrible situation. I mean, we, we're talking temperatures that, that, that dip below minus 20 Entire regiments are completely lost to exposure and, and frostbite. There's disease, cholera spreads uh, amongst the ranks. I mean, you have soldiers who are just lost in the snow and officers know little to nothing about where their men actually are. Uh, wolves feast on wounded. Uh, like the, 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 the phrase devoured by wolves become an official cause of death on the casualty list. Uh, you have on the 27th of February alone, 40,000 Austro-Hungarian soldiers from the second and third armies are reported as missing. So they're just completely, they just end up into nothing and, and uh, with nobody really knowing exactly what it is that, that is happening. Um, but, but I think the best way of, of, of describing these, these conditions is to let the, the eyewitness account speak for themselves, really. Yes, and I've got a quote here from a Colonel George Vase, uh, and he's talking about the first offensive. Uh, and- He says this, 
On the 23rd of January, we moved forward into the icy hell of the Carpathian battle. We stormed through the Ussok, Verek and Wiskov passes, but the troops encountered a snowstorm on the northern side of the mountain crests. On the 25th of January, Major General Lieb's 66th Infantry Brigade, which had been victoriously advancing, once more drove back the enemy, but then was itself pushed back to its starting position by the icy northeast wind. The weather broke up our offensive. It is shattering to read reports from those days. Hundreds died from exposure each day. Any wounded man who couldn't drag himself to safety was doomed to die. Riding was impossible. Entire skirmishing lines surrendered while crying to escape their terrible pain. A group of soldiers from Landwehr Infantry Regiment No. 21 went out as sentries one evening and was found the next morning frozen to death to the last man. No cart or beast of burden could move forward through the mass of snow. For days, the soldiers had nothing to eat in the cold of minus 25 degrees Celsius because the emergency rations which each man carried had frozen solid and were inedible. For seven days, the 43rd Landwehr Infantry Division was engaged in heavy action against the enemy and the snow without any warm food. For 30 days, not a man from this division slept under shelter. Conditions were similar all along the front. It was impossible to relieve the combatants for even a short period of recuperation because the effective strengths of the units were so small. This problem worsened every day as the frightful losses piled up. For example, Landwehr Infantry Regiment No. 20, with an authorised strength of 60 officers and 3,400 men, was reduced to nine officers and 250 men. There was hardly a battalion at the front with even 200 men. As the lines grew even thinner, there were more instances when exhausted men were pulled from an area to be committed to a sector which was in even greater danger. Rear area personnel and lightly wounded or slightly sick troops were sent to fight. Men from many units became intermingled, further complicating both the chain of command and the supply situation. Despite some partial successes, the mood of the men was depressed, even desperate. The realisation that they were fighting the very elements robbed them of any hope. At the end of January, there was a sudden thaw and rain began to fall. The men were soaked to the skin. Since they had no way to dry off, their wet clothing froze in the night into icy armour. Only the troops who had iron constitutions could still hold on. Then the Russians began to counterattack. Our soldiers, half mad and dull-witted from their suffering, pulled back to the positions where the offensive had started. The enemy also soon had their fill of this fighting, and some of their detachments surrendered. Finally, the battle died out. We were back where we had stood in the middle of January, but in the meantime, an entire army had been ruined. Now, these uh, these quotes have been chosen by Nikolai. This is, uh, no, they're not anything to do with us, are they, Gary? Uh, no. They're... Uh, uh, they're brilliantly chosen to just give an idea. And I've got a quote now from Major General uh, Zan Antoni, again, covering the, just the conditions and terrain during the, this, uh, these, these three offensives. And he says this, up to 100 kilometres apart, mountain passes transcend the many lateral ridges running parallel. Between them are a few poor paths that are buried in deep snow during the winter. There were only f a few se settlements, <laughs> and these few were wretched. For the most part, we avoided these and, though exhausted with our last ounce of strength, we built ourselves large holes in the snow in order to find protection from the cold. 
death from exposure to cold was lurking every time one fell asleep in the open air. Many a brave soldier has even been delivered from his toils in the wooded Carpathians. In the night, the wolves came and satisfied their gluttony on the sleeping. It must have looked something like that in 1812 in Russia. And, of course, that's a theme that comes out through this podcast uh, will be the comparisons with eighteen to, uh, with uh, Napoleon's invasion of uh, attempt. I mean, to- it must have been clear in, in everybody's mind, especially uh, a general like this who has studied, probably studied these battles and everything, and to see this whole, so whole ruining of, 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 of an army just collapse into, you know, the Russian winter, um, which which is just a theme that goes again through history, isn't it? Well, we've we've just got, Gary and I have just come back from Gallipoli, and we make a fuss there about three or four days of continental weather at Suvla, which killed three hundred. Uh, but that's just three or four days. This is months of this bloody weather, isn't it? And and it's colder, much colder. It really makes you think. I've got another quote that you've uh, found for us, uh, Nicola. Yeah, this is a more an enlisted man, and uh, just just uh, to say that the the way he, he writes, he he becomes he later becomes uh, a, a a poet. So so a lot of the the language is perhaps a little more <laughs> flowing in, in in a way. Um, but 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 yeah, this is Kaiser uh, Egasep Dobia who as a Kaiser should be used to fighting in the mountains but uh, but yeah this is uh, a little more than anybody can handle I think who is yes. it Pete? Uh, uh, Sepp uh, we're on first name terms he says this it was a cold desperate battle this Carpathian battle in the winter and spring of 1915 it was not a standing battle but rather a moving battle that swayed back and forth on the gloomy mountains and in the woods the battle raged the nerve-wracking roar of battle filled primordial, primordially still, sparsely populated, often deserted valleys. Huge masses of people flooded in and out. The number of dead grew enormously. Death had taken up his throne in the white, bloody Carpathians. He surveyed the army of his victims and was at peace. Carpathian knights. In a steely, dark blue sky, the stars blazed. Big as suns, the mountain forest slept glass still in the freezing cold. I'd call this purple prose, mate. <laughs> but, um, but I am a cultural desert. <laughs> Three colours ruled. Pale white of the endless snowfields. Black of the endless mountain forests. Red of the flames of battle. The sky stretched without limit mercilessly over the death and suffering of the hundreds and thousands of fighters. Searchlights and flares immersed the landscape in a strange, magical light. Often the wide horizon itself seemed to glow and burn. The thunder of gunfire shattered the peace of the night. Machine guns sang their monotonous death song. Guns ticked incessantly like death clocks. The lines ran through valleys, over mountains, through forests and villages, lost somewhere in the boundless expanses of the east. The snowstorm was the master of this earth. It paralyzed friend and foe alike. In a short time, the glitter of the stars disappeared. With it came a relentless cold, which tried to kill all warm life with its breath and against which nothing protected. The cold streamed down from the mountains in icy waves. It rose from the depths of the frozen earth. It flowed down from the sky. Then the people fell silent. The gloomy land sank into the white calm of death. 
The battle knew no pauses. Enemies and comrades charged day and night. In the morning, at noon, at any time. In rows, ten to eighteen men deep. The storming waves of Russians swept up or down a mountain. Rolled back again. They swept over a village, collapsed in a rain of fire. They rolled through the forest, surged back again. What was life worth in this gigantic struggle? What did hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands matter? Nothing. The Carpathian front devoured people in unheard of numbers. It sapped the strength of both opponents, worn down like a hammer that relentlessly smashed down day and night. Week after week, the deep snow drank rivers of blood. And although it's a bit purpley, it didn't half yeah. effective. I think that's a great quote. Uh, well chosen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and it it is also if if you see what he's doing here, he's he's both describing that it's both the terrain, the weather, and the enemy sort of mixes into one big enemy. I mean, you you are fighting against the elements almost more than you're actually fighting against the the uh, the Russians. But it's also important to note that he is saying that the battles are continuing all along the front all the time, uh, and and uh, the the the, the Russians, of course, also have um, terrible casualties from from this. But yeah, it just continues like that for for forever, uh, it, for months uh, on end in uh, horrible conditions. Now, uh, uh, the next quote uh, is another one from uh, from Gary uh, as Colonel George Vyth. This is on the would- second offensive, isn't it? Yeah, he was the guy we heard from before, and he he has written one of the more famous account uh, of of the battle. So, yeah. On the 1st of March, there was fog and heavy snowfall. It was impossible to remain oriented. Entire regiments got lost, and the result was catastrophic casualties. The weather changed on the 6th of March. The skies were clear, which caused melting during the day, while at night the cold reached minus 20 degrees. The result was that all slopes were totally covered with ice. Even when the enemy didn't interfere, movement became an unpredictable alpine adventure. Although the sunshine at least gave some warmth to the combatants, icy northwest winds still could chill them to the marrow. Along the entire front, there were no shelters. For days and weeks, the soldiers couldn't change their clothes, which froze into icy armour. The ground was frozen hard as stone, which hindered the efforts of the attackers to build trenches as protection against hostile fire. This enormously increased casualties. Since it was difficult to evacuate the wounded, they died in droves. After weeks of fighting and privation, the men couldn't even sleep easily at night for fear that they would freeze to death. An especially heavy blizzard occurred on the 10th of March. It was impossible to move forward and impossible to evacuate the sick. Entire skirmishing lines disappeared in the white storm. The terrain was impassable and entrenchments couldn't be dug. The infantry lay motionless without any protection in front of the enemy positions. Most of our artillery had been left three or four days' marches behind the front. The troops, however, held on, despite all the reports of their commanders that they had been totally exhausted for weeks. Despite agitation in the ranks and despite the spies all around them, they persevered in this hell. Uh, That's so descriptive. Now, we're just going to take a, a short break, which may or may not be filled with an advert. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back, if you uh, ever really went away. And uh, and uh, so... We've had the three Austro-Hungarian offensives. Uh, do they manage to relieve this fortress town that means so much to everyone? Shemish. Yeah, that one. <laughs> no, they do not reach uh, Shemish. I mean, there, there's a last breakout attempt in, in late March. Uh, as the offensives um, are failing, it becomes clear that the fortress can't hold and food and ammunition and medicine is running low. So they decide to try and, and break out from, from the inside. But... But really, instead of attacking towards Austro-Hungarian lines in the Carpathians, the commander of the fortress, uh, a guy called Kuzmanik, he orders an attack eastwards into the enemy rear. Um, so this seems like a strange thing to do, but it is probably a because he really felt that that um, it would be futile no matter what, uh, and that this way he could actually cause some disruption. Uh, the, the most important thing was that the fortress couldn't really go down without a fight. Um, but yeah, the last offensive in the Carpathians only brought Austro-Hungarian forces um, to within about 60 kilometers of the of the fortress, so still quite a way to go. Uh, and they could not assist in this breakout attempt, which took place on the 19th of March, uh, which actually initially did quite well, but was then completely crushed, which meant that most of the actual combat troops within the uh, the, um, the the fortress were, were lost uh, and. The the fortress uh, is is giving the orders to surrender. They uh, blow up the forts uh, and surrender on the twenty seconds of March. Um, about one hundred and ten thousand soldiers uh, and two hundred uh, two thousand five hundred officers, including nine generals, go into captivity from uh, when when the when the the fortress surrenders. And and the scene is just horrible. There's a, a Russian officer uh, who describes this. He, he actually does it to a, to a British military attache, describes the scene uh, that, that he witnesses when the fortress surrenders. Everywhere, one saw the bodies of freshly killed saddle horses, some of them animals that must have been worth many thousand rubles. Uh, 
Around the bodies were groups of Hungarian soldiers tearing at them with knives, with hands and faces dripping with blood. They were gorging themselves on the raw meat. I've never seen in all my experience of war a more horrible and pitiable spectacle than these soldiers, half crazed with hunger, tearing the carcasses like famished wolves. Wow. Wow. So uh, uh, what happens next then? So Shemel's I mean, fallen. Uh, yeah, actually, there is one last tragedy to, to this whole story. Uh, the, the final tragedy occurs when the HQ of the uh, Second Army in the Carpathians does not receive the news that Shemis has actually surrendered in time and the last attacks to relieve the the fortress is made after it has already surrendered uh, again to predictably awful losses uh, so it's just the final little tragedy for for this whole horrible uh, story so uh, what's next we've got a uh, the, the russians counterattack so they carry on but they're losing men as well we've got we must this is a two-way process isn't it uh, it's a slaughter on both sides yeah, it it is because now now the Russians are on the offensive and 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 with with Shemish in in Russian hands, they are trying to break through the Carpathians onto hoping to to reach onto the Hungarian plains and beyond uh, in a in an attempt to to really uh, knock Austria Hungary out of the war finally. But when they go on the offensive, they are facing the exact same problems that the Austro Hungarians are, and and, and it is just absolutely horrible battles again that that continue uh into april and then finally all the way into in through through easter now yeah, we've got and, an, uh, another quote haven't we from kaiser kaiser jager sep uh wh <laughs> or something like that sep to me uh, he says this the battle knew no breaks and there was no end in sight the pressure of russian superiority bent the front back to hungary Austro-Hungarian armies and German comrades fought desperately for the fate of the monarchy, which at that time was hanging by a thread. Jamal fell, defeated by hunger after a heroic struggle. Before the bleeding, sick, exhausted troops, the fateful question rose like a storm cloud. What now? Will we stand? The Russian sea of people is inexhaustible. The Battle of the Carpathians was the Battle of Austria-Hungary. A bitter, choking battle fought broken up into a thousand separate actions fought by men who no longer believed, no longer hoped, who suffered inhumanly and yet did their duty to the end. In these gigantic battles which consumed entire armies, the individual fate disappeared like a drop in the sea. I think that's another wonderful point. Individuals Mm. just disappear in in a a tale of this size. Millions, millions marching. Yeah, and it, it, it is uh, the, finally the Germans are, are sent in. Uh, they they send, send uh, forces for, from the uh, newly created 11th Army, and they only arrive just in time to to stop the Russians, uh, who are then forced to, to 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 hold their own offenses around Easter, and that that's when the fighting finally really dies out in, in the Carpathians. And what we're left with is just a horrible butcher's bill uh, of, of the fighting here. Um, Austria-Hungary, by their own estimates, is 800,000 casualties, more than 100,000 Germans, and a staggering 1.2 million Russian casualties. So more than 2 million in total for for three months of fighting. So this is more than the battles of the Somme and the Don combined. In the Carpathians, Austria-Hungary lost uh, in three months what what France and Germany uh, together in total lost in 10 months at Verdun. It leaves both 
armies completely in ruins. But but the question is, what, what, what was this for in the end? Because you really you really are left with the question: what, what it, was it worth it? Well, of course, Shemis was lost, but but you can also say that Austria-Hungary, though they had enormous casualties. Uh, managed to to stop Russian uh, offensives into into uh, Hungary, uh, and and Russian casualties were also incredibly horrendous. And, and the Carpathian Winter War is really setting up the stage for for what will be one of the more staggering victories of the war. Um, so it leaves Austria-Hungary with a broken army, dangerously close to collapse, but also the Russians uh, are, are sort of opening an opportunity for the Central Powers at this point. Now, almost at the same time, the Germans have their own plans on the Eastern Front that they're uh, uh, that they're conducting, and and I believe it was the Second Battle of the Missourian Lakes was occurring around about the seventh of January, nineteen fifteen. Yeah. So, so as uh, as Peter said before, the, there's uh, the, this this. Um combined offensive idea in the beginning of the year with the Austro-Hungarians and the Carpathians and then the uh, the, the the Germans in uh, in East Prussia what will be known as the second battle of uh, Masurian lakes the attempt is is to first of all expel Russians completely from from East Prussia and then to push into Russia to the Vistula and hopefully end the war which is of course always the the, the idea here um but but you 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 have uh, in a preliminary at uh, action in the war, you have the first use of of, of a gas attack uh, at uh, Bolimov, uh, but it it really it goes largely unregistered. The the uh, wind blows in the wrong direction, and the cold means that the 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 gas doesn't really form in a way, so the Russians don't really notice it. The the German attack though is is uh, followed by Russian counterattack, which fails with huge casualties. At least like forty thousand Russian casualties in in that counterattack follow following that uh, action. But the main battle is is again just to go over it very briefly. They fought in terrible weather. Uh, there's some initial German success, and they managed to push them out of East Prussia. But they they do fail to to surround the 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 tenth Russian army, which is what they want to 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 ultimately do. Uh, they fight hard uh, and and put up tough resistance, and are man- managed to pull out without being surrounded. And now we have a, a German quote. It's a Danish German. So he, uh, from yeah, we he's love from those uh, the, yeah, he's from the Danish minority in uh, in northern Germany, southern Jutland, was known as uh, Schleswig, uh, from the Reserve Infantry Regiment Number Two Hundred and Sixty Two. This is uh, Johann Jessen. Johannes, yes. that, yeah, that's what I said. As we ran <laughs> forward, the shooting got worse. Costa and I jumped over a log fence. Here, he was hit through the right thigh and went down. I continued towards the stream. Hans ran up a small mound where he had his jaw shot to pieces. Philip had his left index finger shot off. Soren was hit in the head and died. I was running alongside Unteroffizier Zimmermann, and when we threw ourselves down in the deep snow, he was hit in the head and died on the spot. The snow sprayed me in my face. When the bullet struck in front of me, but luckily I got behind some large exposed alder roots down in the stream and was reasonably protected from the bullets. Now, uh, let's just, so this battle is another failure, basically, probably for both sides if you want, but I suppose the Russians did marginally better than expected. 
But um, the, 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 this isn't it, is it? Because the Germans come back with the plans for the Battle of Gaulistar now, uh, which would be fought in May 1915. Now, can you set the scene a bit for, for this battle? Because this is an important battle. I mean, even people like me and Gary have heard of this one, haven't we, Gary? Yes. Yeah. So uh, with the Russians completely uh, beaten after months of fighting in, in, in the Carpathians, uh, Germany really eyes an opportunity, or Conrad as well for that matter, although it will mostly ride on the Germans since his army is shattered. Uh, but they want to, again, I'm going to say it again, uh, knock Russia out of the war and prevent an Austro-Hungarian collapse, which is their main point all the time on the Eastern Front at this stage. There is a need for military success for Austria-Hungary, uh, especially to deter Romania from joining the war. Also Italy, but by the time uh, the fighting actually starts, Italy has already committed. They don't know that uh, at this point, but they commit already in late April to to go into the war on the side of of uh, France and and Britain. Uh, but yeah, they they want to prevent this uh, these neutrals from joining in. Now the question is where to attack. They want to concentrate forces to attack an exhausted Russian third army near the area of Gorlitsatano. It's decided that this is is uh, the place where where they can best attack. The ground is more favorable. The enemy uh, defenses are relatively weak compared to the rest of the front. And to do this, they're going to uh, use the newly formed German 11th Army uh, created by divisions from the Western Front and the Austro-Hungarian 3rd and 4th Army under the overall command of General August von Mackensen, an extremely capable general. Uh, one of the ones who didn't do that well at Tannenberg, but has really learned a lot of uh, of what, what it means. He, he goes into the war with a very, uh, you know, the same issues that everybody has, just let your infantry charge and, and, and expect to win the, the day like that. But he really learns quickly that that's not the way of modern warfare. And he, he is going to do an incredible job here. Uh, uh, he has about 220,000 men in total, supported by 900 uh, artillery people. But what's more important is that he has a lot of heavy artillery. These are uh, German 210 how, uh, millimeter howitzers and these famous uh, Austro-Hungarian 30.6, uh, sorry, 30.5 uh, centimeter Skoda siege howitzers, um, which it's good contender for best artillery piece of the war and and one of the the only things that the austro-hungarian army really had had going for them uh in terms of 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 armament but they um they start on the first of may uh with the artillery starting to open harassment fire and searing guns on the uh positions of the russian third army um then the following morning there's a four hour long bombardment which completely shatters the russian lines and the infantry begins to move forward and by by the end of the first day, they have advanced uh, ten kilometers. So it, it it really just shatters through the Russian the Russian uh, front at this point of the of the of the line. The Russians are completely unable to stop this breakthrough. And on on the sixth of May, Mackensen has captured some sixty thousand Russian troops, um, and the entire Russian line in the southern part of the eastern front is 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 retreating at this point. Then on the 10th, there's a Russian order to set up a new line of defense on the San River, which we've heard a lot about. That's where the the that's the river where where Shemish is is on and where they've fought back and forth to that line a million times by now. Um, but that that's that will be the end of the first objective uh, for the Golisitanovib. But it is soon decided to capitalize on the success and continue the attack. But w- what you're seeing here is just it's hard to really pinpoint a good 
quote of what what this is uh because it is a million small actions here and and there and armies moving forward but i i, I picked one by a hungarian cavalry officer called pal kilemen uh who is describing what he sees as as these the, they just continue onwards and onwards uh, in 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 the wake of, of the Russian retreat. On and on. That's why you picked me. On and on and on. <laughs> For days, only Russian abominations and all the loathsomeness of the front are before my eyes. I roam about and see trenches evacuated all of a sudden, dugouts, villages blasted into ruins, and feel but one cold, deliberate resolve to survive this greatest catastrophe, to stay alive and someday to walk again on soft carpets in a tidy house. I'd like to live in a tidy house. Uh, um, oh, sorry, out of character there. At every step al- among the cinders of the battlefield, I see new confusion. Along the road, cans, pillows, a stray knapsack, bullets, a bathtub, scraps of food, a cartwheel, further on, a dead horse. Filth and contamination cover this region. A mass grave lies behind my tent. The rain has partially washed away the earth there, and not and not having been buried deep enough, the corpses lie uncovered in the sun. In a trench sector, right before the breastwork, a Hungarian Honved lies flat on his belly as if asleep, his yellow, shriveled hand still clutching his rifle. Further, farther in, great cases of Russian ammunition, a mess can and a Russian kepi, shrapnel shells and torn shoe. A big heap of firewood, a wash bowl, a discut. This reminds me of that that game that they used to have where there was a. a <laughs> do you remember? You won't have this. They used to have a a, tra- a, a an escalator thing going. Generation around. game. Generation game. And you had to remember the things that were on it. Oh, sorry, <clears throat> a discarded piece of a field stove, a fur vest full of lice. Toward the rear, a Russian foot... Right, I'll stop being silly now. A Russian foot soldier lies face up on the earth with his feet wide apart. Blood is trickling from his mouth, a blood-stained bandage beside him. And in the midst of this picture, of the picture, sorry, is an apple tree in full blossom, fresh, fragrant, beautiful as a Gary in love for the first time. Oh, no, young girl. Sorry, I said Gary, didn't I? Oh, we got through it. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, it is. Um, it, it's it's a, a, from from his uh, his uh, his memoir of the war based on his diaries. It is quite a, a remarkable um, a diary good. from a soldier who serves on all fronts of the Austro-Hungarian army uh, throughout the war, and it, it, it is it is uh, quite these these small moments that he's observing along along his road. It's not a lot of fighting. It's 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 these scenes that he he, he records, and I think it it covers the the scene of a, a massive army retreating over over ground that has already been seen combat for 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 many many months. But yeah, it it goes on and on and on. Uh, which on the 22nd of May, they reached the new Russian uh, San line, uh, and in the first days of June, they recapture Shemish, uh, which is hailed as a great and symbolic Ray. victory for the Austro-Hungarian army empire. Fourth, yeah, exactly. Fourth of June, there, are wonderf- there are wonderful photos of, of that, that, that make it onto postcards of like this is the scene when when the, these soldiers were told that they had captured Shemish and they're all waving their their hats, hats and caps. It's perfect propaganda. But uh, yeah. Again, it's decided that they need to push on. I mean, this is this is on, you can on. Almost, yeah, but you can almost feel that 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 
this is a little unexpected because they they keep reaching the end of 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 their 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 objectives relatively quickly and then they have oh what do we do now okay we continue so now with Shemish in in uh, in in uh, and in German hands they decide to go after Lemberg which was lost in the first days of the war in the battle of of um, of uh, Galicia in September and they they reach that on the 22nd of June and capture it the 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 main thrust here is uh yeah, about 120,000 Austro-Hungarian German soldiers uh, they begin the attack on the tw- 12th of June break russian lines on the 15th and at this point the russian third army has basically ceased to exist on the 21st as an extremely tense situation as losses just rise in uh, in the russian army and stavka the the russian general staff orders a complete evacuation of galicia uh, which was won in so much blood the previous years. Now, now they are willing to give it all up to save their army, basically. And the following day, yeah, as I said, on the 22nd, Austro-Hungarian troops, uh, troops retake Lemberg, and this marks the end of the Golitz-Tanov offensive. The Russians have lost 350,000 soldiers, 250,000 uh, have become prisoners in less than two months, and the lines have been pushed back 200 kilometers. This is really a remarkable success for the for the Central Powers. But far from the end of the fighting, um, well, because, because, because it continues. There's a long way to go to get to Moscow yeah. or wherever, and the Russians have got lots more troops, haven't they? Well, the yeah. shortening of the line means that you know, arguably, yeah, they're I mean, able to, to cover it with less troops. I mean, that's the thing now because on the 23rd of June, this is the day after. The sect, uh, von Sekt, who is uh, Mackensen's uh, chief of staff, he proposed that the Germans continue their fight uh, and attack into the Polish salient. Now, th- this whole combined some offensive uh, on the Eastern Front in 1950 often just covered as the Golitz-Satano offensive, but it's really two separate offensives. You have the Golitz-Satano offensive. is this attack to re- uh, in Galicia to recover ground lost by Austria-Hungary, ending with the capture of, of Lemberg in June. But now the, German really wa- the Germans really want uh, to, to again capitalize on success, uh, to retake actual, uh, well, not retake, but, but, to, but to take actual German ground and possibly knock the Russians out of the war. So as this happened, as discussions happened already on the following day, uh, on, on uh, the 24th of June, the Tsar is told that the Polish salient can't be, hel- uh, be held and that uh, the Russian high command has decided to shorten the lines by completely evacuating the Polish salient and set up a new line of defensive running from Riga to Kovno to Grotno. I know these names sound completely unfamiliar. Brest-Litovsk, which some people might have heard of uh, for something that happens later, down to the Book River and the, the Dniestra, which is, we hear about today in the news a lot, and what, what it basically is is cutting the entire front line in half. That still being said, that is still going to be about a thousand kilometers long. Uh, this is a huge front, uh, but but it's going to do a lot for the Russians to to save on manpower, and they're going to do this in stages. It's not. It's not this that will be known as a great retreat. It's not just a, a, a complete collapse of the Russian army falling back. It's done in stages. It's a fighting retreat. They implement heavy use of scorched earth tactics uh, and and set up fighting along the way. And it's important to 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 really uh, remember that this is not just a headlong retreat into the east. This is is more successful than that. They 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 are trying to to it's not the army falling bad it, it is an order to withdraw and they're doing it relatively effectively 
although losing ground and losing important positions along the way. But it's also important, now I said that the employed scorcher attaches to remember that this is an awful impact on the civilian population, uh, which is in the East is much more effective than in the West. And I have a, a short quote here. It's by a Russian soldier who, who describes uh, what he sees as they make their way through, through uh, uh, some of these towns that have been uh, destroyed by, by, by the, uh, the retreating army. So he writes... How many ruined children I've seen here. There is one little Jewish boy that I cannot forget. Think of it. In a single hour, soldierdom completely orphaned him. They beat his mother to death, hanged his father, and tortured and outraged his sister. Uh, and this boy was left not more than eight years old, and with him a baby brother, not yet weaned. I tried to give him bread as gently as possible and to stroke his head. He cried out like some kind of vampire. And with that cry, set off running uh, over anything that laid in his way. After he was out of sight, one could long hear him squeal like a beast from grief and orphanhood. That's terrible. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's important to remember that especially the Jewish uh, population in this region is terribly hit. The Russians are not <laughs> happy about the Jews. And they've already, in, in, in a lot of the regions that they have captured, uh, and and su suppress. They have really uh, carried out these programs to 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 gather them in 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 places and, and take away rights from them, and, and, and in many cases torturing them, uh, deporting them. And it 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 is just exacerbated by the war, of course, and, and by the brutalization of soldiers in 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 war. But but yeah, it is an incredible toll on civilian populations. Yeah. But but at the same time, you have the German attacks continue into central Poland. <laughs> They begin in mid-July. Things move really fast from here. So I'm just going to run through just to give an idea of, of how this works. Uh, you have 13th of July, Oberost, which is Hindenburg and Ludendorff. They begin their attack in the north. On the Two days later, on the 15th of July, Magnussen attacks in the Polish salient and pushes the Russians back 14 kilometers on the first day. Then you have 17 July, they reach the Narev and the city of Radom. 23rd, they cross the Narev. 29th, they cross the Vistula. 31st, they take Lublin in the south, which is followed by, by uh, Kolm on the, the following day. Then on the 5th of August, they have a big prize to capture Warsaw. On the 10th of August, they besiege the fortress of Novogiorgiev. On the 17th, they take the Kovna fortress. On the 20th, they capture uh, Novogiorgiev. And here, the Russians, just to give an aside, this is massive uh, battles as well. Here, the Russians lose almost 90,000 men, including 30 generals and 100, uh, no, 1,600 artillery pieces and more than a million shells in, in this fortress. You have another fortress on the, 30, 30, uh, on the 21st of August, or Soviets is captured. Then Brest-Litovsk is captured on the, on the 26th. So the German advance is just really rapid. And, and what they're using is they're using a lot of the heavy artillery to bring down these fortresses. They're using communication. Uh, telephones uh, are used. There's, uh, Mackensen is very good at keeping in contact with his troops, always knowing where they are, always uh, having communication with his front line as they move forward, good supply lines. All that is 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 working for the Germans at this point. There's a there's a laws written out that anybody seen near a telephone pole is to be shot because it's so vital that these lines of communications are are are, are being maintained. Um, so so for the Germans, it's going 
fast and well for the Austrian Karens in the south, going a little not bit so, slower. Not so well. <laughs> uh, uh, a little bit slower. I mean, they are exhausted at this point uh, by the bloody fighting. I mean, this is this is going very tough for them. But 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 they are also advancing. Uh, this is important. We always talk about it as a German offensive, but the the, the Austrian Karens are fighting alongside the Germans. Uh, they are in. in for, for, for example, Golitz Tano, there are more Austro-Hungarians involved than Germans, uh, even though under German command. But, but yeah, it's going on like that. Now, uh, so what are these black and yellow offensives that, that I hear tell of, <laughs> that I've never heard of? Yeah, the, the black and yellow offensives. Briefly, so, so briefly. This, yeah. So this is Conrad's quest for victory of his own. At this point, Conrad decides that he needs his own victory. So far, all victories have been won only with German help. So he decides to launch his own offensive known as the Black and Yellow Offensive in eastern Galicia and in the region of uh, Volhynia in, in, in late August uh, oh, and, and into September. Uh, the problem is his men are very badly prepared for this. Many of them are, are brand new recruits. They have very few successes in the beginning, but bad weather slows them down and the Russians counterattack and retake captured ground and sees enormous numbers of prisoners. It's an absolute embarrassment. And it is a battle that is, as you say, you don't know it. It's been almost forgotten uh, today. There are no books on it. There's nothing on it. It was buried after the war by the uh, by uh, disciples of Conrad in, in Austria and in the war archives. But, but really what it is, is a complete disaster that ends up costing the Austro-Hungarians uh, a quarter of a million casualties. But at this gonna- time... At the time, uh, even Conrad's closest officers knew that this was a complete disaster, and they dubbed it Conrad's Herbstsau, which means something like his autumn swinery, uh, which is a fantastic term. Uh, but but they really make fun of him. And here we have uh, this is from the diary of Karl Schneller, who's a staff officer at the Austro-Hungarian uh, staff. Uh, this is uh, might seem a bit weird, but I've cut it out of of uh, different days. So this is his uh, the the parts that he's written about this offensive for several days. So so so, but but it gives an idea of what he thinks of this. They muddle along in front of Raulno. Roth shows his complete incompetence as a higher leader. Today, the Second Infantry Division gets smacked on the head because it again attacks at height on its own. Meanwhile, the Russians are happily rolling out new forces. This entire operation is one of the most shameful that we have commanded. An army allows itself to be held up by two brigades and bumbles about for so long until an enemy that is much stronger arrives. The operations in East Galicia and near Rovno are becoming a textbook example of what not to do. The Archduke's army group has been stuck for days. No big decisions are made. The reports are only registered superficially. And there is only one thing. Stop at last in East Galicia. But orders are orders. Our leadership in the East is not only bad, but also careless. It's just good that the Russian is such a charming opponent and doesn't push on himself. The Fourth Army is operating outrageously poorly. Conrad creates the impression that he is deeply affected by events. He is, in fact, a poor man. I see today how he is given orientation. He and all the gung-hos standing over a map. Brantner, captain in the general staff, reads the report from the 4th Army from a Hughes telegraph strip that had not even been gummed. And from this, the chief of the general staff is supposed to form an impression. 
The operations in the north have been given the name Autumn Swine of the Imperial and Royal Army East by the uh, younger officers at the Eastern Headquarters. This Autumn Swine will have unpleasant consequences in several ways. One, we are now entirely at the mercy of the Germans. Two, they have brought about the deployment of all forces intended for the Balkans from the northern theatre of war. We were also unable to keep to our agreement with Bulgaria, and there, and as a result throughout the Balkans, we have therefore also lost our prestige. I find it interesting that all allies seem to argue. Now, we've, we've not got long less, but I do want to mention, because before we go on, the attack on Serbia, and I just want to summarise it very quickly. It, it, it happens on the 8th of October, fifteen. They're aiming for an enemy that can be knocked out, don't they? And Mackensen leads an assault of the German 11th Army and the Austro-Hungarian 3rd Army. And at first it's successful, Belgrade falls on the 9th of October, Serbian armies all in retreat, Bulgaria joins the central powers, as mentioned in that quote. Uh, the Bulgarian 1st and 2nd Armies invade uh, Serbia. But what's the result of it, Nikolai? What really happens? Do they, do they win? They don't win. I mean, nothing Nothing ever is resolved. And that's the thing. I mean, as Falconer says, the, the East gives nothing back. You're still just so far into Russia. There's still so much of Russia left uh, on the other side, no matter how, how good you are uh, at beating down the Russians. There's still more than, than uh, more Russians coming. Uh, there, there's still endless uh, kilometers until you reach anything that will ever make a difference. But of course, the, the casualties are, that are incredible for, for this time. The Russians lose some two million casualties uh, during 1915. Still, you can't really beat them back uh, because there's still more to come. Uh, but what really makes a, a difference here is that because of all these retreats, Tsar Nikolai decides to take personal command of the Russian army. And that ah. is going to be crucial uh, for, for how this whole thing plays out in the, in, in the years to come. The uh, It's, uh, it's also important... This is summed up by the fact that even when they try and beat Serbia, they don't, they may not, they may get Serbia, but the Serbian army mm. survive. They don't seem to be able to win anywhere, do they? No, no. And, and even something like, like, uh, the offensives over the summer, uh, still for victory, Austria Hungary loses some 500,000 casualties in 400, uh, in four months of, of fighting, uh, since the goal, it's a breakthrough. Totals for Austria Hungary for 1915 is uh, 180,000 killed, 640,000 wounded, and 600, 115,000 missing and captured, which is just an incredible number. A lot of those will turn off dead, of course, and a lot of them will end up in in uh, in prison of war camps in faraway places in Russia, in Central Asia, in Siberia. The good thing is for, uh, is for, for them is Romania is still neutral. They do not join the war in 1915. Bulgaria decides to join the war. Italy as we said, was already lost before that, uh, having already agreed before the, the Golisitano offensive. But Italy doesn't really have any great successes on the southern front in, in the first year. And Ser Serbia is uh, is, is uh, conquered for, for, from there on, at least for, for now. Now, fighting 
doesn't really die out until late into to the winter. The Eastern Front bogs down into like a static trench warfare for the first time, really. There are German, uh, there are Russian attacks known as the New Year's battles over over the over this the winter. The Russians lose some seventy thousand casualties. These will be important in the in the following year, but we, we can cover that next time because the, the wrong lessons are really learned from this. Now that's been, this has been fantastic, hasn't it, Gary? Uh, thank you, Nikolai. You really are. You just make it seem so easy <laughs> to, to know so much. <laughs> Pronounceable, yes. That's been, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, we have to. We're, we're doing it on Zoom, and Zoom has a limit, so we're going to have to stop fairly soon. But just thank you very much. What do you want to say, Gary? You must want to say something. I want to say thank you very much, Nikolai. Oh, for God's You're sake. very welcome, Gary. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?